Well, good, ta- good morning, Midtown. My name is Trey Corey. It is a joy to get to be here with you guys this morning. I have the privilege of serving as our executive pastor at Grace, and my family typically attends our Southwood campus, but I have the opportunity with roles and responsibilities to get to kind of move across the campuses. So it is a joy to get to be here with you guys this morning. And so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at the beginning and the opening of the book, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. As you're turning there, I'll tell you, my kids are starting back to school, and so this time of the semester is kind of stories from our kids as they're coming home, telling us about their new classes, their new teachers, and often kind of what are the rumors they had heard about the teachers, and are those rumors true, and we're kind of in that mode right now at home at the dinner table, which kind of took me back to thinking back to my senior year in high school. I was in an all-guy private Catholic school in Dallas where I grew up. And I remember hearing about a teacher that I was going to have my senior year, and so I heard stories about him all through my junior year in high school. His name was Professor Donahue. He was a reserve military, and he was one of the most intense and scary figures I had ever run across at school. And there were stories that were told of him that seemed larger than life, that we heard all these stories about the rules that he had in school, in his class, and how he ran his class a lot like a military barracks. Everyone reported for duty, everyone had to be on time, and everyone had to do everything that he asked especially never fall asleep. And so he actually gave us all these rules and gave us all of these consequences if his rules were broken, but he was never really clear what would exactly happen if we stopped listening and if we fell asleep. We're going to have to just discover that one as we went along, and no other former student would ever tell us what was going to happen. So it was about two months into that first semester of uh, my fall semester, senior year in high school with Professor Donahue, that a kid finally fell asleep kind of had that head bob before he finally just collapsed and he's laid out on his desk and our professor was up at the whiteboard and it was as if he had eyes in the back of his head because he stopped writing immediately and he turned and he began to stare at the student from the front of the class and he didn't say a word and he didn't move for what felt like an eternity we're all just watching and waiting to see what was going to happen and so for about two minutes he just stared at the student and then finally he walked down the aisle right over and stood right above the student for about another two minutes the tension was high, and you could and literally hear a pin drop. You could hear saliva dry. It was that stressful, and it was that quiet. As we were all waiting to see exactly what was going to happen, what would fall prey to the student who broke his rule and who fell asleep and was no longer listening. Our professor took a red felt-tip marker out of his pocket, and he took a line, and he drew a line across the kid's neck. Waking up, sensing pressure to his neck, the kid took, touched his neck, and as he opened his eyes, he saw red all over his hands. Scared and startled, he looked up, and now our professor was still standing over him, this time not with a red felt-tip marker, but with a serrated pocket knife, all right? The student was utterly bewildered. We were utterly astonished. And if this day and time, if that kind of thing happened, we probably would have a lawsuit. Someone would have been expelled and fired. But I grew up in the 90s where things like this happened, all right? And I'll tell you this, no other student the rest of the semester fell asleep in Professor Donahue's class, right? He got our attention. He had a very clear rule, do not fall asleep, listen to me at all times, and there were consequences if you broke that rule. But for all of us, we struggled to listen well. We struggled to pay attention and enduringly pay attention. Uh, How many of us have come home from a long day of work? I come home to the kids, and the kids are all talking often all at the same time, and there's that look that begins to come across my eyes as they glaze, and I begin to check out, unable to process everything that's being said to me. And at some point in time, my kids say, Dad, Dad, what did I say? What did I say? And they begin to quiz me on what just unfolded over the last 30 seconds, and I have zero recollection of whatever it is they just told me. 
And you see their hearts just crushed. Dad, do you know what it feels like if you're not paying attention to me? It's not just in parenting, it's also in marriage. How many of us, maybe I'm the only husband that just doesn't always have the energy to process through all of the words that are coming to me in the evening sometimes, especially at 1030 at night when we're trying to solve the world's problems. I can't do it. And all of a sudden there's a break relationally in our marriage, right? Or maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school when you're not listening and able to absorb all the details from a, a boss or from a teacher or professor as to the assignment that's in front of us, the job that's in front of us. And because of that, we miss a deadline, we miss an important detail, and we fall short of what's being asked. Listening is a common activity, a common responsibility that often finds consequences. And what my fellow classmate found that senior year in high school was that failing to listen to Professor Donahue brought drastic consequences. What we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, is that God is going to have spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and failure to listen will bring consequences. And if they were swift and if they were immediate with my uh, world history professor, a senior year in high school, they will be significant as well when it comes to the God of the universe, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 is going to show us that God has spoken to us in his son, Jesus, and listening is imperative, but listening can still be hard. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 is going to show us the rhetoric of Jesus, what he has to say. It's also going to show us the resume of Jesus, why he's worthy to be listened to. And lastly, we're going to see that the rivals of Jesus don't stack up. No one can stack up to who Jesus is based off his resume, which is why he's worthy to listen to, though listening can be hard for us, no matter the role, no matter the environment, no matter the situation. That's where the writer of Hebrews is going to take us this morning in Hebrews chapter 1. So let's pick it up in verse 1. And if you'll follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purifications of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Two weeks ago, Samuel walked us through Genesis, and we looked at the fact that God spoke and he created. This morning, Chris McGuffey already ran, uh, uh, read for us John 1, thinking of Jesus as the word. Here we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to kind of see the writer of Hebrews weave a lot of these together. In which we see that God was not just a creator, but we're going to see the second person, the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was present even at creation. And God who spoke and then brought about creation, God who spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament, is now going to speak in a unique way through his son, Jesus Christ, who's the exact representation of the glory and the nature of the Father. And that if there's ever one to listen to, it's this one. We should get all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our attention. That's where the writer of Hebrews is going to take us this morning as we look first at the rhetoric of Jesus. I want you to notice exactly what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 again. And I love the, uh, the way that he contrasts the Old Testament from the New Testament. He says, in the Old Testament, God spoke. And he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. I love the way, if you think about this, thinking back to the Old Testament, think about the great diversity of the way that God spoke to his people. From Moses in 1500 to Malachi in 500, over a thousand year period of time, God spoke in a great diversity or great variety of ways. Sometimes it was through dreams and visions. Sometimes it was face to face. Sometimes it was through prophets. Sometimes it was through kings. Sometimes it was through pillars of smoke. Sometimes he spoke through bushes. That there was no 
there was an incredible great diversity by the way in which God spoke and revealed himself to his people. They look back at over a thousand year period of time to the people of God, the nation of Israel. God spoke all kinds of different ways. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that as you look back at the great diversity, now you look forward to a great singularity. In the past, that God spoke to the fathers and, the, and the, through the prophets in many portions, in many ways, but now he's speaking to us in his son, Jesus. It's interesting, this past week, uh, you may not realize this, but yesterday is OJ's birthday. Uh, and so if you haven't wished him a birthday or sent him a gift, he would still welcome it even a day late, all right? Uh, we don't need to do it during church because that's sacrilegious, but I know we would love to hear from you. So reach out to him. But on Thursday, Guff and I decided we'd take OJ and Enoch and Samoa out for lunch. And so we're out for lunch, and it's OJ's birthday a couple days earlier. We think it's his birthday that day because he's making it a birthday lunch. We realize his birthday is a couple days later, but because it's still within his birthday week, we let OJ pick where we're going to go. You may not realize this, but OJ loves a place called Cook Shack, all right? Cook Shack serves one thing. Chicken fingers, all right? They serve chicken fingers in in an assortment of different ways, but they serve one thing, and they're so good at that one thing, they don't have to serve anything else. Personally, I love going to places like Cheesecake Factory, Jason's Deli, where you open the menu, and it's like a a multi-page manual, right? There's so many options, it's overwhelming. But then there's places like Cook Shack. They don't need all the diversity of all those other places. They can serve one thing and go toe-to-toe with everybody else. Torchy's Tacos, another example, right? We're going to serve tacos. We're going to do it better than anyone else. And we're going to go toe-to-toe with every other restaurant. In many ways, I think about uh, the Old Testament, the way that God spoke, a little bit like Cheesecake Factory, Jason's Deli. An amazing amount of variety, all right? New Testament, Jesus, don't take this in the wrong way, but it's a little bit like Cook Shack, all right? We're going to do it one thing, and we're going to do it better than any other way because we don't need to do it any other way. We're going to speak to you through the singularity of the person of Jesus Christ, And because of that singularity, because it's so superior than any other way that we've ever spoken, we don't have to speak any other way. What the writer of Hebrews is doing in a book in which he's going to highlight the superiority of Jesus is going to show that he spoke to the people of God in the Old Testament in a diverse kind of way, in a diversity of ways. But in the New Testament, he's going to speak to us in a singularity of a way through Jesus Christ and through the Scriptures. And that singularity is superior to the diversity because it's Jesus Christ. In fact, what he's going to do in the following verses is going to unpack for you and I the resume that Jesus holds to show us exactly why he's superior to the way that God spoke in the Old Testament. Why is it that God speaking through his son, Jesus Christ, is superior to all other ways that he spoke? It's because of his resume, and he's going to unpack that in just a few verses. I love what he says here in verse, <clears throat> verse 2. He says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. The first element on his resume is the fact that Jesus is God's son. What does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? It means that he shares the same nature uh, with the father. Or in a sense, he shares the same likeness with the father. Normally, I would love to hear illustrate for you a a picture of Stephen Jones, the son of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, but it's still a little too close to the colossal disappointment that happened last Sunday, so I can't go to the Cowboys right now. So I'll go to another place that's maybe even a little bit more embarrassing for me, but some of the people have often, often asked, am I the son of Joel Osteen, all right? They see a likeness, they see a similarity, they wonder if I'm of the same nature as that one, and I will tell you, no, right? I'm not related to Joel Osteen, our theology is very different, our hair is the same. That's all we got, all right? So to be the son means that you share a likeness with, a similarity with. If you saw my son here who was here two weeks ago, he's a hair twin. He looks just like me hair-wise, all right? 
that to be a son means to share a likeness and a similarity with, but it's not just a likeness, but it's actually to share the same nature with. Notice what he says in verse three of Jesus. He, sa- uh, he says, verse three, he says, uh, he's the radiance of the, of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. That the reason why Jesus speaking is better than the Old Testament prophets is because this one shares the same nature with the Father. He's unlike the prophets. He's unlike the kings. He's unlike all those that came before as a God-man. First element, the first bullet point on his resume is that he's the son. That's why we read John 1. That to have seen the son means we have seen the father. There's no clear representation. There's no clear mouthpiece. There's no clear revelation than the son, Jesus Christ. He's not just the son, but he also has a fascinating relationship with the world itself. Interesting, going back to two weeks ago when we looked at the creation narrative as Samuel walked us through it, God spoke and he created. John 1, we see as well that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? That in the beginning, Jesus, what we're going to see even uh, highlighted here at Hebrews 1 is that Jesus was a second member of the Trinity that was present at creation, which is why the writer of Hebrews can highlight that he was not just present but responsible, saying in verse 2 that he is uh, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. I love in verse two, we get not just that he's the heir, the future heir of all things, but he's also the creator, meaning he was there at the beginning and he's going to be there at the end. That he's the creator that was there at the beginning, he's going to be the heir that's there at the end, but he's also the one who upholds all things and sustains them through the beginning to the end. Notice verse three. Uh, and he, uh, he said, uh, uh, sorry, continue on in verse three. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. The picture here is that Jesus was present and responsible at creation. He's going to be the heir of all things. In between creation and the heir of all things, he's upholding and holding it all together as a sustainer of the world. He's the world's creator, he's the world's sustainer, and he's the world's heir. The resume of Jesus is stacked not just as the one who is the son sharing the same nature with the father, but when it comes to the creation that we're a part of, that we get to enjoy, he was there at the beginning, he's gonna be there at the end, and he's upholding and holding it all together right now. Lastly, he's also our high priest. He serves as a priestly function for us. In verse three, it says, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That he's not just the world's creator, heir, and sustainer, but he's also our faithful high priest. That he died on a cross to make provision for our sins, to sacrifice and to die in our place, a death that should have been ours so that our sins could be forgiven. And with our sins forgiven, we would have the opportunity to be reconciled and have a relationship with the creator God again. Not on the basis of our works as if we could merit anything, but on the basis of his finished work, which he completed and is now set down because he's finished. Uh, my family and I are in the course of moving right now, and so every single waking hour is spent prepping for movers that are coming tomorrow as we're moving from one house to another. And what I long for is when everything is delivered and we can just sit down and rest, because right now there's not a time for rest. Right now, it's go, 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 move, 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 and just hope in middle, my middle of 40s that I don't throw my back out at somewhere in this process, Right? To sit means that you've finished the work, that it's completed, that you can rest. Jesus made purifications of sins. He's made that possible for us. That work is finished, and he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father, 
presiding for us, having made a way for us. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you don't have a relationship with him, the best news this morning I can give you is not just that he's spoken, but particularly he's spoken and revealed that the best way and the only way to him, to the Father, is through him. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father but through me. What the Father has revealed to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, is that the only way to have a relationship with him is through his Son who paid the ultimate cost for us so that we wouldn't have to work and merit his approval, which we never could do, but that he would do something for us so that we could measure up based off of what his Son has done for us. In order to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, all one has to do is confess their sin and acknowledge that Jesus has died and has resurrected, proving he has power over sin and over death. And he invites us in into a lifelong relationship with him simply by belief as an absolutely free gift. It's the beauty of what we find in Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of the relationship we can have with him. He who has spoken has also died and invited us in into a relationship with him the ultimate heir of all things, the one who made and created all things, who's upholding all things together, is also inviting us in to relationship with him. When we think of who Jesus Christ is, there ultimately we see his rhetoric, we see his resume, and lastly this morning we see that he has no rivals. He has no rivals. There's none that match up and measure up with him. Notice the way that the writer of Hebrews ends this little opening part of the book in verse four when he says this, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. There's power in the name. There's significance in a name. Some of you may not know this, but it's time for us to go to the next level, but my actual legal name is Huey Todd Corey III, all right? It's an element of trust that I'm extending to you because I don't like to be called Huey, all right? Uh, my nickname is, what I go by is Trey because I'm the third in my family, but I'm in a long line of Huey Todd Corey's uh, that exists now. There's significance in the name. It brings identity, it brings value, it says something as well. And for us here in Hebrews chapter one, verse four, as the writer of Hebrews is opening this book that's all about the superiority of Jesus, what we're seeing is that this Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than not just the prophets, but even the angels. And for those that had a Jewish audience, or this Jewish audience that had a background in the Old Testament, they lofted and they revered prophets and they revered angels and the opening verses of the book of what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's taking those two and he's putting them on a pedestal down and helping them realize that Jesus is superior he's superior to their best of their prophets and he's superior even to angels themselves they all bow down and they worship him he has no rival so the question becomes if God has spoken to us in his son who has this resume and he has no rivals and the natural question is, what is our natural response? It ought to be to listen. That if he speaks to us through his son, then our response will be to bow down and to worship and to listen to this one who is the world's creator, sustainer, and heir, who's our high priest, and who's better than the prophets and better than the angels. As we jump into a new semester and a new year, one of the challenges I want to give you as we build rhythms and as we head into a spring semester is that we begin to build in a steady and consistent rhythm of meeting with and listening to Jesus. The spring semester for our family is one of our busiest, not just that we're moving, kids' sports, all kinds of stuff happening. 
There's all kinds of activity. There's all kinds of busyness. There's all kinds of noise and distraction, which makes it really easy to not pay attention to the creator, the sustainer of the world, Jesus. What I want to challenge us to do in my prayer and my hope for us as a body this morning as we step into the semester is that we would build a daily rhythm that's simple. I want to take you back to the basics that we'd be meeting with Jesus 20 to 30 minutes a day. In the prayer, in prayer, in the word, having an opportunity to remind ourselves that God has spoken to us through the word and through Jesus. And we'd have the opportunity to hear the quiet leading of, his, of the spirit and his voice in our lives and that we wouldn't get spun up in the busyness and the activity that we'd miss the beauty of Jesus and the quiet leading of his voice and an invitation into a relationship with him. I love the story that's told of an experiment that was done in a Washington, D.C. subway. It was in 2007, a violinist was playing in the subway, and the story is told that he was a man that was playing for about 45 minutes. 2,000 people walked by through the station on their way to work. After about three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing for the first time. But he kept walking by, and his pace slowed, but he sped back up as he had a schedule to keep. He had a place to get to. About four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat and, without stopping, continued to walk, just kept going. It was about six minutes into this experiment as he was playing that a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, looked at his watch, and started to walk. It was ten minutes in that a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed harder, and the child continued to walk, being pulled and dragged along by mom. Throughout this time, several children stopped, but every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on. A total of 45 minutes would go by in which the musician played continuously. In those 45 minutes, only six people stopped and listened for a short time. About 20 people gave money and continued to walk along their normal pace, and the man collected a total of $32. After an hour, he finished playing. Silence took over. No one noticed him. He packed up. There was no applause, and he left without anyone recognizing who he was. No one knew this at the time, but the violinist was a man named Joshua Bell. He's one of the greatest musicians in the world, and he played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin that was worth $3.5 million. Two days before, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston in which the seats averaged about $100, and this was 2007. No one knew this, but the Washington Post had hired him to play in the Metro as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and people's priorities. An experiment raised this basic question. In a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? And are we willing to stop and appreciate it? In a commonplace environment, at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? And are we willing to stop to appreciate it? The band's going to come back up, and we're going to close out this morning a little bit. But I want to pose to you, in the midst of a new semester, in which there's going to be all kinds of noise, all kinds of responsibilities, whether it's at home, whether it's at school, the workplace, even the church setting, in which the world begins to spin, our schedules begin to spin, Sometimes school can feel like syllabus shock when there's all kinds of things coming at us. It's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to get lost. And what the Washington Post study was trying to prove, and they proved it without a shadow of a doubt, 
and an inappropriate and an inopportune time in the midst of a crazy schedule, in the midst of distraction and noise, we fail to perceive beauty and we never stop to appreciate it. You and I have to build a rhythm in the midst of our weeks, in the midst of our days, in the midst of our mornings in which we're willing to stop or we're willing to halt and we're willing to listen. And we're invited into one of the greatest opportunities we could possibly have in which the God of the universe, his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for us, has invited us into a relationship with him and is asking us to open his word, to know it, and to hear what he's spoken and to hear what he's revealed and wants a relationship with us to continue to lead us and to guide us. But the easy thing is to be too busy to listen. The easy thing is to keep moving on to the next thing, the next thing that's on our list the next person that's calling for us, the next thing that's vying for our attention. And my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that we would be a people in the midst of a new week, in the midst of a new semester, that would build the rhythm and the willingness and the discipline to stop, to be quiet, to listen, to hear his voice. Personally, for me, I can strategize I can run hard, I can do a lot, but stopping and being quiet is really hard. So personally for me, this is an area of struggle, an area of weakness, which is why I'm bringing it forward to say, can you join me in the struggle? And can we all begin to try to struggle together to build this rhythm in a new way? Maybe for you that's in the mornings, maybe for you that's in the evenings, but there's gotta be a time and a slot in the midst of the day that we stop. We block out distractions, we block out noise, put our phones away, laptops are closed, and sometimes others in our family are pushed out for just a moment for us to have the opportunity to hear and to commune and to connect with Jesus. Nothing can be better for us, nothing can take us to new places this semester than that rhythm and the satisfaction that will come if we'll stop and we'll listen. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we confess that listening is hard. Stopping is hard. Slowing can be hard. But the cost for us is that we miss you. We miss your voice. We miss your leading. We miss the depths of a relationship with you. And so I pray, Lord, this morning in the midst of a semester, in the midst of a new year, Lord, I pray that you'd meet with us. I pray that we could taste the sweetness and the richness of a deep fellowship with you. That we would serve you in the places you called us out of an overflow, not out of an emptiness. That we would respond in obedience to you out of fulfillment and out of a delight and not out of an obligation. It would be response to relationship, not response to rules. that you would tune our ears to hear you, you would tune our spirit to commune with you, and that you would allow us to walk deeply with you this semester. May you take us to a new place. May you deepen our times with you. May you deepen our relationship with you. May you lay a foundation upon which everything else will be built this semester to endure the hardships that will come, to celebrate the joys that will come, and to honor you in the midst of it all. We ask for these things this morning through your son, and by your spirit we pray. Amen.